Hi, everyone. Drew Perot from the Broken Brain Podcast. Welcome. We have an amazing interview today with my dear friend, Taro Isokopala, founder of Four Sigmatic. And we have him on the podcast to give you a deep dive into all things mushrooms. We're going to talk about functional mushrooms and the power that these superfoods have to improve our health and specifically our brain health. You know, mushrooms are so much more interesting and fascinating than you can ever imagine. A lot of people don't know, but there are estimated to be over 600,000, 600,000 species of them on the planet. Compare that to 290,000 species of plants. And we've only begun to understand the hidden power of these life forms. I can't think of anyone better than Taro to give us a deeply educating overview of what we know and what we don't know, and most importantly, how we can practically incorporate functional mushrooms into our routine. Okay, before I talk about some of the topics that we cover in this podcast, I'm going to ask you to stick it out till the end because we're going to be talking about Santa Claus. Yes, you heard that right. In honor of the holidays, Taro's also going to tell us the story of the true origins of where Santa Claus came from. It's so fascinating. You're not going to want to miss it. Okay. In addition to Santa Claus, here's some other topics that we cover in the podcast today. We talk about the difference between functional mushrooms and culinary mushrooms and when to use which ones and things that you have to look out for when it comes to choosing culinary mushrooms to cook with in your diet. Some of the research around mushrooms and which mushrooms have research on them to support cognitive function. We're going to talk about how mushrooms can improve our gut health. My hope is that by the end of this interview, you feel so much more versed in the topic of mushrooms and super excited to explore them as a category of foods in your routine. As always, thanks for listening to the podcast and tuning in. If you aren't subscribed, do subscribe via Spotify or iTunes or Google Play. You'll get alerted every time a new episode goes live. And if you want to give Dr. Hyman and I a little holiday gift, drop us a review on the Apple podcast app by letting the world know how much you love broken brain it would mean the world to us lastly if you aren't following me on instagram pop over there my name is drew d-h-r-u-p-u-r-o-h-i-t you'll see me pop up shoot me a dm so i know who you are i'd love to say hi back okay now on to my formal intro for tarot Tero Isokopla, the founder of Four Sigmatic, is on a mission to make medicinal mushrooms some of the world's most researched superfoods and more accessible to everyone on the planet. Born in Finland to an agronomist father and a nursing teacher mother, Tero grew up on his family farm that they've owned since 1619. There he foraged for mushrooms and other wild foods while learning about the natural food space at a very early age. Following his early education on the farm, Tara later completed a degree in chemistry and a certificate in plant-based nutrition from Cornell University. In 2006, he won a Finnish Innovation Award for discovering that the sought-after Japanese culinary Matsutake mushroom also grew in Finland. Taro has lived in eight countries on three separate continents, and he has a strong personal interest in health and wellness, which includes activities like making some pretty freaking amazing raw chocolate. Taro founded Four Sigmatic in 2012, and its products are now sold in over 25 countries. He's a reputable source on superfoods and an expert in natural medicine, and he's been a featured speaker at conferences like Summit Series, Wanderlust, Further Future, the Culinary Nutritional Conference, and WME. Tara was also chosen as one of the world's top 50 food activists by the Academy of Culinary Nutrition. 
Terra and Four Sigmatic have been featured prominently in media outlets like Vogue, W Magazine, Forbes, BuzzFeed, and many, many others. Now on to my interview with Terra. Take us back a little bit. You know, mushrooms are so fascinating, but I think the thing is that I don't know if high school did a great job of explaining how fascinating they are. <laughs> no, probably you know, not. Mu- mushrooms mm-hmm. existed on land even before plants did. Yes. By several hundred million years. Like, zoom out and give us the big picture elevator pitch on why mushrooms. Mushrooms or fungi are a kingdom. And there's few kingdoms. There are plants, animals, bacteria, fungi, and then there's various single-cell creatures, these kind of more primal forms of life. And when something is a kingdom, it means that they're incredibly vast. Think of how many types of plants there are in the world, and then multiply that with six. And that's the amount of different types of mushrooms that there's estimated to be in the world. And we haven't obviously discovered all of them. And even the ones we've discovered, we're still learning more about the massive, massively. And as you uh, diluted to it, uh, they were the first thing to come from the ocean to the dry land, like 2.4 billion years ago. I've heard even some estimates say like 4 billion years ago or something. Is that- well, that's when the earth started and then probably there was some sort of <laughs> so scratch that, I'm definitely wrong with that. Yeah. Uh, but, but it still means that over 1 billion, 1.3 billion years. Yeah, 1.3, 1.3. I'm looking at my notes right here. 1.3 billion years ago. 5 billion years ago. Yeah. Mushrooms except- took over. Well, and then there's a whole school of things that they're not from planet Earth. Which technically everything in life is not, you know, we're all made out of various minerals and elements that come because of star exploded somewhere in another galaxy. So I guess it's true as well. But on planet Earth, they were the first thing to come from the ocean to dry land. And for over one billion years, they ate rocks. And uh, that kind of takes me to why they're important for humans as well is they had to eat something. And there's a significant difference between eating mushrooms and eating plants for health is just our DNA similarity. Mushrooms cannot produce their own food. They have to eat something to produce it, usually soil, trees, in this case, pretty extreme rocks. Same way as animals cannot produce their own food. They need external food sources, but plants can. Plants can produce food through photosynthesis. Mushrooms also breathe oxygen and expel CO2. Just like humans. Just like humans. Plants are the reverse. And there's multiple other similarities. And almost half of our DNA is similar to fungi. So actually, Animalia and fungi were same kingdoms back in the day. We're part of the same super kingdom. And because of this DNA similarity, it's a blessing and a curse. We are very prone to fungal diseases. Candida, molds in buildings. There's many forms of fungal illnesses, and a lot of them are bad for you. But at the same time, that's why fungal medicine is so bioavailable. It's estimated that roughly 40% of all pharmaceuticals utilize fungal medicine in part of them. Obviously, all pharmaceuticals are isolated or derived from nature and various sources, and about 40% of them utilize fungi because they're so bioavailable because of the DNA similarity. And penicillin is the the drug that often gets referred. It's made from mole fungus, but there's many others. And actually, funny enough, to your earlier point about immune system, a lot of them are related to the immune system, either immunosuppressants for people who have autoimmune disorders, or obviously you mentioned cancer when people have a passive immune response. So if somebody has cancer and they go through therapy, their immune system is very jeopardized. And that's often, like you said, that's what breaks the straw, so to say. And at one point in time, it's just fascinating, you know, other couple of things as I was like researching, people sometimes don't know, largest organism in the world that exists today 
is a fungus. Yeah. It's Tell a, us about it. It's a humongous fungus. <laughs> humongous fungus. <laughs> That's the my, nickname. Yeah. There's a lot of dad jokes about mushrooms, by the way. So <laughs> <laughs> it's in Oregon. It's in a national park. It is part of a honey mushroom. So like with anything else, mushrooms are or animals or plants or bacteria are in certain groups. And one of these honey mushrooms grows in Oregon. It's the world's oldest and largest organism. It's estimated to be two to 4,000 years old. So if you turn 50 or something, you should think you're a young, young creature. <laughs> this guy has been around for quite a while. And it's about size of 20,000 basketball courts. So one mushroom size of 20,000 basketball courts and it keeps eating these trees, this national park. Like I said, mushrooms need to eat something. And that's why their role in nature is to recycle living organisms to other. So as the tree is dying, if you ever walk in the forest and see a dead tree, you often find mushrooms growing from it. So what this, this does is just keeps eating those trees. And it's only one cell level thick. So if you look at your skin, and depending how you calculate your skin, you have, let's say, at least three layers in the skin. And this one organism is able to, with one cell level, has been able to survive two to 4,000 years. That's pretty magnificent, so. It's incredible, it's incredible. Going back to the big picture on mushrooms and why I wanted to start there is that people usually, if they don't have a background in mushrooms, mm -hmm. they know a very limited range of culinary mushrooms. Yeah. But there's a whole other classification of medicinal mushrooms or mushrooms for health purposes. Give us, again, a big picture cover some of the culinary stuff that people may be used to, but talk about this whole vast other world of just, you know, name a few, give us an idea of some of a few ones that are out there. So here comes the cliff notes here. Culinary mushrooms tend to grow on the ground. Medicinal mushrooms tend to grow on the trees. It's not black and white. There's exceptions, but this gives you a little bit of an idea. Culinary mushrooms tend to be ones that you can cut with a knife and a lot of these more functional medicinal mushrooms, they'd be more sturdy. You have to cook them like bone broth. I'll give a couple notable exceptions as well. So culinary mushrooms that are still good for you, maybe not only for health purposes, but flavors of morels, porcini, chanterelles. These mushrooms still have essential minerals and, and nutrients. You can get vitamin D, various B vitamins in them. There are antioxidants. There was a study from a university of Pennsylvania's Department of Mycology that the porcini mushroom was the highest source of antioxidants from the foods they studied on that one. I think it was particularly high in glutathione, which obviously probably a lot of listeners are important of, in the detox process. So many, like the master antioxidants, so master. to say. So these culinary mushrooms are good for you. They're they're okay for you, but you eat them mostly for culinary purposes. So again, chanterelles, porcini, bolides, And people morels, often associate truffles. them with like Asian cooking yeah. or more like ethnic or international cooking. And, and that's actually funny because most cultures around the world are mushroom friendly. Yeah. The one notable culture that is not mushroom friendly is Anglo-Saxon culture. Yeah. And there's two theories why that might be. But the British did not enjoy mushrooms. They originally did, but then they didn't. And then that culture really impacted the culture in USA and USA becoming the cultural powerhouse it is. For some reason, a lot of people have this thought that nobody likes mushrooms. But if you go to Slavic cultures, Southern Europe, you go to Asia, yeah, you're in like Russia or somewhere, it's mushrooms are a huge part of that culture. So it's just that the Anglo-Saxon culture particularly tended to be very mycophobic. Maybe it was a fungal disease that caused it. Maybe it was their fear of witchcraft and psychedelics. We don't know. Nobody knows. One theory was actually that women 
uh, were the ones who were the gatherers. Men were the hunters and women were the gatherers. Women had the knowledge in herbalism and mushrooms. And then at one point, because of social reasons, it was better to discriminate women. And at that time, mushrooms were made like bad thing. Hmm. Again, nobody really knows, but the Anglo-Saxon culture has been a long time more mycophobic, so scared of mushrooms. And for that reason, people think that they're not a big deal. But if you travel, you notice that they're quite a big deal. And obviously, a lot of Oriental cultures, almost all mushroom names are even Japanese. So the taki means mushroom in Japanese. So if you see shiitake, enokitake, machutake, and so that indicates it. But then and they were part of the toolbox, the healing toolbox. Yeah, 100%. And they have fiber. There's no cholesterol. There's a lot to like. There's very little calories and a lot of nutrients. But then there's these functional mushrooms. These are sometimes more a little bit more rare, like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, lion's mane. But then there's a couple that most people know that also can be used for culinary purposes. And these are the notable exceptions that could fall into either category. And those are shiitake and maitake. And to a certain extent, enoki and oyster mushrooms, but especially shiitake and maitake are among the most researched mushrooms in the world. Shiitake is the second most researched mushroom in the world and second most cultivated mushroom in the world. So it's definitely something that can be is delicious and time-worn and scientifically backed. And these functional mushrooms, besides having essential nutrients and vitamins, often somehow help our immune system to modulate upwards or downwards. If you're in cancer or you have jeopardized immune system, you need upwards motion to really uplift, immunostimulate the cytokines and natural killer cells and all that stuff. And then if you have an autoimmune disorder or something like that, then you need to suppress your immune system, immunosuppressant. And mushrooms do can be immunomodulators, so they can modulate, um, which is obviously the power and intelligence of nature uh, to modulate. And they also have these adaptogenic properties. So these functional mushrooms, besides having minerals, vitamins, like vitamin D, B vitamin, iron, yada, 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 they also do have these adaptogenic and modulating properties that are, you know, a little bit harder to quantify at first, but we're getting better and better at it, understanding why they work. Yeah. As the research evolves, we understand it better and this whole new classification of looking at how mushrooms work in combinations. And that's yes. just like we're only at the beginning stages of understanding that. You mentioned a little bit about the research. Obviously, this is the Broken Brain Podcast. Tell us about some of the research around mushrooms and brain health. It's early, but what do we know so far? Yeah, so when something is good for whole body health like mushrooms, obviously healthy immune system impacts brain health. We talked about gut biome and Actually, that is the area of research where most new mushroom research comes from is in the gut biome. And we all know about the connection of the brain and the gut biome. But if we purely focus on the brain as an isolated you know, organ, uh, lion's mane is the mushroom that really pops up. Lion's mane is often known as the smart mushroom. The monks used to use it along with meditation. And what we now know of, again, like initial research on it is that it could prevent with mild cognitive impairment and it has these two compounds heresium and heresium one of them has this magical ability to penetrate the blood brain barrier and we know that that's quite hard only certain things like glucose can enter that so that's sometimes the challenge is how do we transport nutrients into the brain because the the body is designed in a way that we kind of separate the brain and the body 
with that blood-brain barrier. So lion's mane has a compound that can do that and take new things into the brain. And the other compound has this ability, at least what we know of right now, is to help repair and regenerate nerve growth factors. That whole area of research on how those nerve growth factors can help with longevity, but also just everyday memory. So that's why lion's mane so far is the most fascinating. There's also the other mushroom that I use for running, cordyceps, that is shown to increase ATP production. And that's, again, kind of like the gut health. If your cell energy production is more efficient or more powerful, then your brain is probably also firing at a better speed. Yeah, and going back to the lion's mane, you know, the mechanism of, of being able to suppress these Many listeners have heard this term called cytokines. Mm -hmm. These are pro-inflammatory cytokines that can be linked to Alzheimer's, can be linked to different brain disorders and lion's mane in uh, animal models being able to reduce the impact of some of these pro-inflammatory cytokines that have such a damaging effect on our brain. Yeah, so almost all of the top medicinal mushrooms are antiviral, antibacterial, anti-inflammatory. So I'm, you mentioned cytokines as one of these internal factors of inflammation, or maybe they're markers. We don't yet know, are they, which one was first, the chicken or the egg? But what we know is when those inflammation markers are high, that probably your brain is also not optimized. So what they can do is improve your gut biome, lower and help lower inflammation, and these specific mushrooms like lion's mane or cordyceps can also be more specifically targeted to the brain. The other one I want to note, though, is that for the brain function, a lot of the best herbs that I've seen, also just outside of mushrooms, that are used for cognitive function, tend to also be things that calm your body. And again, this is more anecdotal, but I've noticed that if I go to the Amazon or if I go to China or Russia and I look at what are the things that are used for brain cognitive function, they also tend to be things that somehow modulate stress. So I come from the Nordic countries and one of our top five superfoods is rhodiola rosea, which the Vikings took before going to battle. And it's used as it's one of the few foods in European Union that are allowed to make health claims and that improves cognitive function. In Europe, you really can make health claims about anything. They're a lot stricter. Yeah, and, but because of the research, mostly from Sweden, you are allowed to say certain claims around cognitive function or rhodiola. But it's also shown that these rosevins in this rhodiola really calm you. And that's, I think, just anecdotally important is that like if you're a stressed individual, same way as if you're a highly inflammated individual, your brain is not operating in an optimal way. And sometimes some of these things like ashwagandha might be another one used mostly for stress and adaptogenic properties. But a lot of people who take ashwagandha report a more clear mind, more focused mind. Same way as meditation. You calm down, you think more precisely. And I think some of these mushrooms also have these adaptogenic properties that could attribute to better brain function. So we made this documentary, Broken Brain, and the uh, second episode was all devoted to the gut health connection. You talked a little bit about that earlier. I want to explore mm -hmm. that a little bit more. Tell us about mushrooms and bacteria yeah. and gut health. What's the connection there? And uh, what should our listeners understand if they want to think about improving their gut health? Well, actually, I have a lot to thank you guys for bringing some of the latest research to my attention. Um, so for a long time, I've expected what has now been proven in the last two, three years more extensively. So 
So the main compound in these functional mushrooms are polysaccharides, many sugars, especially these beta-D-glucans 1.3, 1.6 compounds that are among the most researched compounds in the world. They're studied very widely, for example, for anti-tumor properties and whatnot. And those get absorbed in our digestive tract. And I always thought there must have been a connection between those beta-glucans and gut health. But obviously now that gut biome has become such a big topic of interest for a lot of researchers, in the last few years, the amount of research around medicinal mushrooms and gut health has really exploded. I think we're only scratching the surface. And I got from you guys um, a couple of years ago, maybe, just kind of one of those studies that was peer-reviewed studies in, in 2017 about just gut health and various mushrooms and what's the research currently on those. I think from those medicinal mushrooms, right now the most fascinating and the most research for gut health is reishi mushroom, R-E-I-S-H-I, also known as the queen of all medicinal mushrooms, and is the one mushroom that is even more researched than shiitake. And there's quite a few studies, including from San Francisco, on mostly on rats for now, is how when double-blinded placebo studies where control group was fed the same diet and the other one was fed the other diet, actually a a low-carb, high-fat diet, and then the rats that were given reishi extract had significantly better gut biome, but also they lost fat faster, which was also pretty fascinating. And the only variable was the reishi usage. So I think we're going to see continuously large amounts. And why is this that right now we're discovering these connections with bacteria and fungi? It kind of all makes sense because bacteria and fungi have had this long ass relationship. I mean, kombucha is made basically with black tea, fermented sugar with a scoby that is a symbiotic relationship between bacteria and fungi. Bread, wine, cheese, beer, all use yeasts. So yeasts are one category of fungi, and these yeasts are used in various fermented foods. And we obviously know now how massively important fermented foods are. And if you do a gut biome sample and you work with an expert organization who knows about gut health, they will figure out that there are certain types of fungi-related bacteria in your gut. So if you eat little or no mushrooms, certain bacteria can be bigger or smaller in your gut. So, And what we're learning from a lot of the research is that it's really the diversity, you know, for when probiotics got sort of introduced, especially in the market, people would take these high doses of like single strains, Mm -hmm. which might give you a lot of that one particular strain, but may not be helping your overall health, which really needs to be like a rainforest and be just super diverse, which mushrooms help you build that because they have this relationship with bacteria. Yeah, and they are prebiotics. Let's start there. Maybe I should have started with the fundamentals is that I've worked with so many clients and unless they've just gone through a major antibiotic thing or something, usually adding large amounts of probiotics has not helped them. But instead of when they've really doubled down on prebiotics, various fibers has really helped them heal their gut and mushrooms can operate as a prebiotic and so that's definitely impactful and to build up on what you said i definitely don't think mushrooms are the solution for everything they're not a magic pill they're just very underrepresented so i think almost everyone can benefit from adding some of these polysaccharides and beta glucans to their diet just because like they're they're just a kingdom that is forgotten almost so they're not going to solve every problem but they're just so underrepresented and so well studied that adding a little bit of these high quality functional mushrooms can make a huge difference on gut biome and your overall well-being. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that is accessibility. And besides, in addition to your vast knowledge, you've really tried to make them more accessible through the work that Four Sigmatic does, which is we'll talk about a little bit later on. Let's go back a little bit into the origin story Mm -hmm. and some of your background. At what point in time do you go from discovering this mushroom that Mm -hmm. previously was only grown in Japan, and now you see that's in Finland, to now making this one of your life's missions to... Uh, get the superfood of mushrooms out there and the awareness to increase. Fill in some of the gaps for us. Sure. So when I found it, I was quite young. I just come out of the army. We have to go to the army in Finland. And I didn't know what to do. And the idea of serving Michelin star restaurants, serving the 1% or even the 1% of the 1% with incredibly expensive mushrooms, matsutake is like the truffle for the Japanese, did not excite me. So instead of pursuing that, I ended up donating the idea. Me and my friend who made the discovery is like, hey, this university can run it. We didn't benefit financially from that beyond this initial discovery prize. And I just wanted to travel the world. And what was actually funny is when I traveled, these mushrooms kept popping up. I lived um, three years in China and just like understanding how they use it alone was quite mind-blowing. And it was, like I said, through running that I truly discovered the benefits of these functional mushrooms. And I, I played with a lot of superfoods and it was they were hard to convey to someone who was scientifically valid. Um, even some of the, my favorite foods like blueberries, there's a, there's a limited amount of research still on them, even though they're so common and widely conceived as something really good. And if I would give it to an athlete that I would work with, for them is often I don't feel benefits. Like I take a blueberry smoothie, I don't feel anything. So they didn't really buy into it. So what was cool about mushrooms is that a lot of the people that I gave mushrooms to felt it quite instantaneously and got that immediate feedback that there's something happening in my body. And these were just people that you were helping like with their performance or coaching them? Pretty much exclusively professional athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes and their performance. And, and, and you were a coach? You were a sort of a yeah. Sherpa yeah, no, of nutrition? Was, yeah, nutrition, <laughs> not, none of the exercise. But I was, because of my passion with performance and basically what I studied kind of randomly, I played soccer growing up and whatnot. And I had a few friends who became professionals. And it's actually kind of the myth about professional athletes. If you see a professional athlete advertising a health product, obviously there's exceptions, but out of, oftentimes they have no clue you know, athletes often know less about nutrition than the average person. <laughs> so um, they really needed help. And I was for many years helping professional athletes with nutrition. So, And in that world, I just saw how important it is to have something that gives quite immediate feedback. And that's what a lot of these mushrooms did. And I also saw a few of my friends who had dedicated their life to educating people about health really gain massive traction that didn't exist before. Because when I made this discovery well over 10 years ago, there was no blogs really. There was no... Not a lot of social media. Yeah, like Facebook had just launched and there was not really a way to get the word out. So the information about what's healthy was dominated by large governmental organizations, few lobbyists, big food companies. So big food, lobby, government, and very few radical ideas were it was hard to introduce radical ideas to the society it was very conventional and just the progress we've seen in the last 10 years would have not been possible without the internet and first, like if you wanted to find it you'd have to go to some random health food store and they have a little tiny book section and maybe you'll get a couple books over there if you're lucky yeah oh my god i think we both have gone through the most 
odd websites and conferences to find the knowledge within of everything because there was not a great place to go. And first through blogs and then later through social media. And now obviously a podcast is blowing it up even more. I just saw that there's an opportunity to educate. So I had hope that I didn't have before. Before I didn't have hope, I didn't believe that a guy from a small town of you know, a few hundred people in my village in middle of nowhere, Finland, in the middle of snow, could make an impact and dent in the world how people eat. But internet showed me that there's a way and there's a path. And that's when I really started. And I didn't start to set up a mushroom company per se. I, I wanted to create a company that served whole foods, the most nutrient-dense whole foods in the world. And I mean, still we do other things than mushrooms as well, but really in the initially I was looking at what are the biggest problems in global health? And I came to a few solutions. One was actually gut health. And then the other one was hormonal imbalance and the other one was immune system. And then when I started listing out what are the solutions in the whole food world that could help with all of these things, mushrooms was the one thing that ticked all three buckets. And that's where that bigger focus came from. But I'm an equal believer in, in other nutrient-dense foods from lemon to turmeric and from cinnamon yeah, to coconut. Yeah, but the challenge again with mushrooms is that they just were not being represented. Yes, so the edu- education was definitely a problem, but there's also been a lot of great mycologists, like a lot of people have heard of like Paul Stamets. Yeah. So I feel like at least as an entrepreneur, my hat on, education is not enough. Education is the first step, but it's not enough. Because there are a lot of people that know that they should exercise, but they don't exercise, right? There's a lot of people they know they should drink more water, but they don't drink more water. And you know this from your previous venture is like, you need more than just that this is a good thing. You need something actionable, right? Yeah, you got to make it at least straightforward for people. Yes. To get started. And mushrooms, unfortunately, don't taste great like for an average person. I think they taste great. But for a lot of people, either the umami flavor or the super earthy, bitter flavor that some of these functional mushrooms have is not convenient. And also, you shouldn't eat mushrooms raw. You need to process them somehow, either cooking them and putting them on soups or in these more medicinal mushrooms, you have to cook them like bone broth. It might be a multi-day process to prepare them. So people are not willing to spend a couple of days on doing a chalk or decoction and dual extraction and, and then it ends up tasting like dirt. So the important was that not just to educate, but figure out how to do the extraction process correctly for consumers and make it taste delicious or yummy enough and one of the first tricks I had was I was just looking at all the things that are bitter that people enjoy and really came down to two things, chocolate and coffee. Those are two bitters that we have on a regular basis. And I set to make beverages that taste good and they're bitter, but in a bitter in a way that people love. And I can hide these medicinal mushrooms in them. Yeah, and they're great. And you have a lot of fans out there. A lot of people who know Tim Ferriss know that he's a big fan of your product. And many other people, uh, myself, Dr. Hyman, Uh, We've given them out to friends on many occasions, and uh, I'm not an investor in the company. I have no financial benefit from you guys doing well, just a fan. What did you start to see when you put these super potent medicinal mushrooms in these easily deliverability like mechanisms? Like, What did you notice in the marketplace? Do you see just like people finally having a love for mushrooms who never previously would have explored it? Yeah, we've surveyed a lot of, uh, by now we have probably one of the largest mushroom communities in the world. And when we surveyed people, we find, one of the funny things we found is that most of our biggest fans and most active supporters don't like the flavor of mushrooms, or at least didn't like the flavor of mushrooms before they discovered us. It's also an acquired taste. And you know, we talk a lot about this, Dr. Hyman talks about how yeah. 
you know, you have an entire generation that grew up without cooking. Mm-hmm. And when you grow up without cooking, you don't have that relationship with food and ingredients, your palate is sort of super narrow. Anybody that's Very. done like a transition into more clean eating and more whole foods knows that your taste buds change. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, bitters are now an enjoyable flavor to me over the last like 10, 15 years. But when I grew up, I had no interest in them at all because I was eating like a processed American food mm-hmm. diet. Yeah. Yeah, definitely that was a challenge. But what we've at least hopefully partially accomplished is that a lot of people who didn't like bitters are now active consumers of Four Sigmatic products. Because just finding the right way, the right palatability of those bitters and then making it super accessible. So to answer your question, I've seen a lot of people who hate mushroom flavor and I'm saying hate because they told us that they hate mushroom flavors and they now today consume mushrooms almost daily. I've also seen people who are not into health that have not, you know, uh, drank the Kool-Aid and a lot of other health things embrace the mushroom packets and the convenience that they have. And just the feedback of that is pretty encouraging because, you know, I didn't set the company to move people from a users of brand A to us. I made so that people who've never consumed Rishi or Lion's Mane or Chaga or whatever to have them an easier way to try it and feel it on their body. And I just believe that once they try it, they're going to be hooked, hooked on it. So, you know, you mentioned something earlier, of course, mushrooms are just part of an ecosystem of a healthy diet and other medicinal things that we can bring in ancient medicine. Are there any people that should avoid certain types of mushrooms? Sometimes you hear in Chinese medicine or like in acupuncture, sometimes people say, oh, if somebody has a damp spleen or there's Mm -hmm. different sort of thoughts that are out there. Of course, you're not a practitioner, but you have a lot of knowledge over the years. Yeah. You're friends with a lot of people. Anybody should, that should avoid uh, certain mushrooms with health issues that they're dealing with? Of course. When something is a kingdom, like I said, there's a lot of good things and bad things. For example, I'm not a big supporter of butter mushrooms. I think you shouldn't eat them if you have candida. And even if you have candida, I'm not really sure that that's something you should you know, add to your diet. I don't. And those are the little button, the little white button mushrooms you yeah, see at Whole Cremini, Foods and Portobello. other places. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm not the biggest fan of those. I think when something is a kingdom, you really have to understand the diversity that that brings. And even let's assume some of the more healthier mushrooms, um, there are some exceptions. Generally, they're a food. They're not a supplement. So they're quite widely accepted. But for example, if you're pregnant, you should really talk to your physician about what adaptogens you should consume. Should you have ginseng and maca and ashwagandha? But the same way, should you have reishi, chaga, cordyceps? I mean, a lot of our customers who've been pregnant have enjoyed reishi mushroom quite widely. But nevertheless, I would recommend everybody who is, for example, pregnant to talk with their practitioner. So a lot of commercially available mushroom products are made and grown on grains, uh, even though they, in their natural habitat, grow on trees. And when Just for you, ease of use and scale and everything like that. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a good thing. For example, mushrooms are the fruiting bodies, so the conventional mushroom shape, that's called the fruiting body. And, and when they're grown in these grains, they're grown using their rooting system, the mycelium. And without making this too complicated for the listeners, the conventional use over to indigenous people, animals, is always been on the fruiting bodies. And the fruiting bodies don't have any starches. But when they're grown using the mycelium and the grains, then the starches are there. And some people, obviously, you know from 
from gut health and sensitivity, some people don't handle those starches that well and grains that well. So they can cause various issues over the years. So it's almost so, like the difference between farmed fish yes, and wild fish, very grass fed beef and you know, corn-fed beef. Yeah, and even the studies on the amount of beta-clugans or polysaccharides in these products could vary from 2% in these grain-grown products to 30-40% in wild-grown or log-grown products. So there's a big difference. But to answer your original question, are there people who should avoid mushrooms? The answer is yes. There are many kinds of mushrooms. Some are poisonous and lethal, so first know what you're getting. And then once you find the right variety, so you're like, hey, I want to have lion's mane. Hey, I want to have reishi. Then know the quality that you're consuming. But this strategy should be applied to anything, not just mushrooms. But um, I mean, I guess the one main disclaimer is if you're pregnant, then talk to your physician. Or if you're on pharmaceuticals, anticoagulants, these are natural, almost nature's antibiotics. So if you're already on synthetic antibiotic, then really consult your physician because there's a lot of similar, you might get double dosed or it might counteract. So if you're on plot thinners or anticoagulants. So besides the fact that they're grown on grain, a lot of these commercialized mm-hmm. mushrooms that you get out in different places, is the other reason you're avoiding the mold? Is there yes. like a mold so, issue with like so storage and other things like that? Here's the cosmic giggle that is sometimes very hard for me to explain to someone who is a very reductionist person. But um, you have to really be worried about mushrooms in mushrooms. And the cosmic giggle is that nature... In nature, mushrooms fight mushrooms. And in this case, what I mean is that they have these, you have these healthy mushrooms, these beet functional culinary that you want to consume. You want to eat a chanterelle, you want to eat a rishi, but then they have molds. We talked early on, there's bad kinds of mushrooms and the molds attack the fungi. And when the mushroom is fresh, the rishi or chanterelle might be able to fight this mold. But once it's harvested and it's no longer connected to its rooting system, it might not anymore able to do that. So when you buy mushroom products, if you have the opportunity to choose and you aim for the best quality, you should look at products that are either tested for mycotoxins that can exist in coffee, grains, cacao, but also mushrooms. So you know that you get the right kind of mushrooms without the and molds. mycotoxins are the, are the poisons that these mold spores put out to destroy other bacteria and fungus around them. Yes, they're the bad ombres. They're the bad mushrooms within mushrooms or other plants. And so, yes, you not only need to know the variety, you also need to know the quality and purity of them. Which in the, you know, you and I have have been around in the early days of the superfood movement and, and that sort of thing. And I remember a lot of people having reactions to what you would think on the surface would be these very healthy superfoods that were coming often from South America, mm-hmm. Central America, they were easier, they're more plentiful over there. These companies that would order in small batches but didn't necessarily have the finances to test for the level of mold or mm-hmm. mycotoxins and people would have things like um, spirulina. Yeah. And there'd be a ton of mold in there and they'd have like a reaction but didn't know what it was. You yes. Know, just one of the reasons that I'm just happy that companies like yourself are growing and are bigger is that we have the ability to actually test and make sure that the purity is still there on some of these products that we know can be beneficial and are not contaminated. Yeah, and I think one of the best decisions we made a while back was to do what is called positive release. And it's actually very few companies do that and very few retailers request it. Funny enough, only of the retailers I know, Costco is the only one who requests all their brands to positive release. Positive release means that 
before the product leaves the manufacturing site, like for example, we manufacture in Utah. So we get cacao from Ecuador and whatever, all these ingredients from to come there and we produce it. We test the ingredients before they arrive, but we also test the finalized product and it's sent to a third party lab. We use a lab called Eurofins and, and it goes there and until they get released and they don't know what it is, it's all coded and they're saying like, okay, here's the markers, if the markers don't come clean, it never leaves the warehouse, the manufacturing facility. So it's never in distribution. And most, because FDA, for example, operates on an aftermarket policy, and most brands only spot test, blind test, like randomly, or they test every few batches, or they test when it's already on the market. But I mean, I grew up a lot in the same kind of raw food, superfood movements. And I've definitely bought very, very, very expensive products that ended up being basically trash because, you know, not for an ill will, but just lack of scale or sophistication on checking on the quality markers. There's a lot of people that are listening that are super passionate about health. Maybe they're a coach, maybe they're a physician. Maybe they're not into health, they're in marketing somewhere, they're in IT, they're programming, they're a teacher, but they started to make changes in their own health, they felt the differences, and they wanna get involved in this industry. Now there's a whole group of people that have a clear path, they wanna work with individual people, they wanna be a practitioner of some sort, acupuncturist, functional medicine doctor, naturopathic doctor, but then there's a whole other group of people that studied something completely different and don't necessarily want to be a practitioner. People like yourself and myself, mm -hmm. and they want to build something. They want to create something. They don't know what that thing is yet. They mm -hmm. have different passions. You know, would love to get some advice for those people who are listening here who would love to create something one day and have a passion for something in the health space, but are looking for steps on how they can turn that into product, a company, or a mission that has the opportunity to impact people? I'm sure you get this question all the time. Mm -hmm. What are the starting blocks that you start people off with when they're thinking about how to enter in the space and match their career with some of their passions? I think the number one is really in the initially think about why are you starting this? What makes you tick? What gets you excited? Why are you interested in health and wellness? and write that down and always remember why you started. Is it to support your family? Is it because your father had this illness and you saw how awful it is and you got passionate about this? Is it because you visited this farm and found this amazing food? But whatever it is that makes you tick, write that down and don't forget it. It's This industry is right now going through a massive shift in the best way possible. Large food companies are struggling. They're losing market cap for young, transparent companies. And you could start product or service that will disrupt how these massive giant companies operate. And along the way, you have to learn and adjust many ways. But I think it's important that you always remember why you started. And that should be the step one. The other thing is... Because at some point in time, there's going to be an intersection, especially in the health world, and especially with products where you could do things for purely profit. Yes. Or for the right reasons. Yeah. I mean, money is definitely an amplifier of positive or maybe not as positive. But also, you don't build a company that really supports what you're doing. Sometimes if it's successful, if it's not successful... Uh, initially, it's uh, easy to get caught up in all kinds of minutiae and really figure out why are you doing this versus don't be them, be you. 
And I highly recommend it. And I think it's more important now that there's so many transitions uh, happening in the industry and in health and wellness that there's a lot of opportunities, but there's also a lot of noise. So by knowing more what you want, you will prevent that noise and really follow your internal signals. The other thing I recommend is really finding a mentor or having just the understanding that you will not initially know how this is done. And I grew up on a farm and my mom taught nutrition and yada, yada, yada. But this, this industry has so many technical things, legal factors and other things that will take a long time to figure out and just have the humility that like, you're almost like at grade one. If you've never done this before, find a mentor, go work with someone you respect or who has a good reputation, learn from them and grow kind of day by day. It can't even count how many times somebody has come because they have a muffin and all their neighbors love their muffin and they're like, oh, it's this healthy, sugar-free muffin. Everybody goes crazy over it. I'm going to start making these muffins and I'm going to sell them and they have no clue what they're putting themselves up to, which is great because the naive energy and passion is really what excites me and everyone else. But at the same time, like, hey, you can produce food at your home like you need to have a facility, you need to have food safety, you gotta, you know, you gotta educate yourself for heavy metals and E. coli and insurances and so many other things. So find a mentor or mentors or work with someone who you respect and you can learn from and have the patience that it might take a few years. You might have to get from elementary school to middle school before like you really start seeing results which might mean not starting your own company it might just mean going and working for somebody else so that you can learn yes right it's totally possible like, there's a sort of obsession right now with people wanting to just immediately go and launch their idea because i think we see shark tank we yeah. see a lot of signs it's of it very sexy but there's no shame in just going and working for somebody else to learn but and, and I also seen unfortunately a lot of people with the right intention to launch a brand but without absolutely no clue what they're doing and then something happens they get sued or something there's a um, quality error or they lose all their money and savings because they didn't think of xyz and then that hurts their reputation their financial situation so actually it might be more make sense to not start your own company but if you're absolutely drawn to do that just have the patience, the humility, and figure out a way how you can get information who been, people who've been there and done that. Your passion and vision should come from you. That's why step one is know why you started. But there's a lot of knowledge within the industry that you need to know and that there's no school for it. So that's why you need to figure out yeah, a way. School's picking up a phone and being able to call a friend, but you got to build that community. You have to build that community yes. of other like-minded people that have been in this space, mentors, other entrepreneurs, people that can guide you regardless of what it is that you're trying so to do. So one, one of our, our Canadian distributors, is this sweet, sweet family, and uh, they used to be in the automobile industry and they used to have factories where they produced various parts for cars. And they were passionate because their own health reasons about actually raw food. And they would go to Expo West years and years ago and they ended up finding this small plant-based protein brand that then later blew up. And it's a beautiful story. But the guy, it's a married couple, and, and the man often says is that, the worst client that he now has in the health food circle is nicer than the best client that he used to have in manufacturing back in the day. And that just means that this is also a very warm industry. So if you're just not afraid to pick up the phone, call someone, meet people, take your time and like honestly and earnestly build those connections, those deep, deep connections, it will be quite easy in this industry compared to many others. So I think 
a lot of people want the same thing here, help people live healthier, be more vibrant. There's a lot of quote unquote good vibes. Obviously, you know, take care of yourself. But at the same time, I feel like getting help in this industry is quite easy. I want to talk about Santa. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have a book in front of me over here that you kindly sent over. And I was lucky enough to hear your talk that you gave mm-hmm. at a friend of ours house. Yeah. Um, at something that our friends Craig and Sarah host called Rising Glen. And uh, you gave a little preview of what was to come in this book. And the book's called Santa Sold Shrooms. Uh, tell us why Santa Sold Shrooms and about this, this story about the most famous person in the world that hardly anybody knows. Yeah, I, I, well, I'll start with the last one. I think arguably Santa Claus is the world's most famous person. He's famous beyond any religion or culture. You can go to Asia, you can go to Africa. They know Santa. Santa is a famous character. But very few people know how Santa Claus became a Santa who sells sugar water. He didn't start by selling sugar water. Coca-Cola didn't invent it. A lot of people think, oh, it's St. Nicholas who was from Germany. But that's quite incorrect. St. Nicholas was actually from Turkey. And the story came to America through the Dutch. Dutch got it from the Germans. Germans got it from the Italians. The Italians stole the grave of St. Nicholas. The Turkish got the story from the Slavic people. And the Slavic people got the story from where almost all great stories come from, from indigenous people. <laughs> and these indigenous people in this particular case are called the Sami. And by the way, there's no reindeers in Turkey, but the Sami are known as the reindeer people. And they are the ones who've been herding this caribou-like deer in very cold climates in a place called Lapland above the Arctic Circle. And Santa's story is quite magical. And the Sami traditions explain why Santa comes from the chimney. Why do we have red ornaments on the trees? Why do we have presents under the tree or on top of a fireplace? And the Santa salt shrooms just tells a story about a 10-year-old little girl whose father tells a bedtime story. And through this bedtime story, she discovers more about the history of Santa. And I think this is just important, not just for the Christmas part, but it's also important that we often forget all our major holidays. Why is Thanksgiving celebrated or Easter or or Halloween or people, my absolute pet peeve is probably Cinco de Mayo when people yell happy Mexican Independence Day, even though it's not even <laughs> Mexican Independence Day. It's quite the opposite. So I was compelled to write this book because the Sami are part of my lineage. They live in Lapland is in northern Finland. And I've been telling this story in various events for a long time. And I've just felt the time was right. And there is a magical mushroom. It's called Amanita muscaria that ties into the story. Amanita muscaria is arguably the most famous mushroom in the world, but nobody knows that it's called Amanita muscaria, but they've seen it million times over. Just to give a couple examples, if you type a mushroom emoji on your phone, you're typing in Amanita. If you see Super Mario collect a mushroom, that's Amanita. If you see Disney movies or Alice in the Wonderland, it's Amanita. And it's a legal mushroom, but it's part poisonous, part psychedelic, but it's quite quite incredible and it also impacts the brain in many fascinating ways but it's unlike the other magic mushrooms it's not illegal anywhere in the u.s except louisiana and that's a whole nother story for that but all the other states that mushroom is completely legal and yeah and santa claus used to take that mushroom and give us a little bit of a preview of some of these things that have become so commercialized that we known to think of as Santa and ornaments and this idea. Just give us a little bit of a preview of, of uh, this story that this 
father's telling his, his daughter? Well, Christmas aligns based on the old calendar with winter solstice, so middle of the winter. So for the indigenous people, often the sun and the moon and the stars and were a big part. And in, in this case, in, in northern and Lapland, there was in winter solstice, there's only like an hour of sunshine a day. And in the summer solstice or midsummer, there's 24 hours of sunlight. And so there was a magical this ceremony that was held in, during winter solstice. And Santa Claus would come with its reindeers. Reindeer is one of the first domesticated mammals. And he would arrive to these families in these villages. And because they're semi-nomadic reindeer herders, they would live in these kotas or lavus, depending on the local accent and language. But they're basically like teepees. They're um, between a teepee and a yurt. This lavu or kota is called, it's like a semi-permanent structure where families would live. But because it's so cold there, you're, you're surrounded by snow and it could be minus 10 Fahrenheit easily. There is a fire inside. And in order, because of the fire, the roof of the teepee is open. So the smoke can go away and it's made out of wood, moss and whatnot. And when you're sleeping there at night, often you might get snowed in. The entrance is really narrow and you crawl into the lavu. And then if it snows in, you can't get out. So the secondary entrance and, and exit was through the roof. And when the shaman would come in the winter solstice in the dead of the winter to do the ceremony, often he had to enter through the chimney to get into the lavu and then perform this ceremony for the family. Interesting. Yeah. So fascinating. Well, we're going to link up to it. Santa sold shrooms, a great story for adults, but also for kids too. Going back to Four Sigmatic, I want to chat a little bit People are not familiar with your products. What's a good place to start? I want to give a shout out to a few of my personal favorites. You recently came out with uh, matcha. I think there was like a matcha latte-like yeah. flavor. Really, really love that. And I love the hot chocolate. Those are two of my favorites. When people ask you and how to navigate, where should I get started if I want to try some of your stuff at Whole Foods or online, what do you suggest to them? Well... Overall, not just for Sigmatic, if this conversation got you excited about possible health benefits of mushrooms, I always say is when in doubt, start with Rishi mushrooms. So again, R-E-I-S-H-I. It's the most studied of all the mushrooms. It is quite sacred and beautiful in many ways. So that's a great way to start. It's a very calming, grounding mushroom. So I recommend taking it in the afternoon, evening. The hot chocolate you refer to is a stress-reducing hot chocolate Rishi mushroom. So that's a great one. We also have a new chai latte. It's a paleo and vegan uh, latte made with coconut milk and it has no caffeine. Normally chai, uh, as you know, is like a tea beverage made into a black tea, but this one is made into mushrooms, so there's no caffeine in it. But uh, that, those are quite delicious. And, and as far as flavor, if you're worried about what's the flavor of mushrooms and how to benefit, the coffees are very, very popular. There's a and they don't have actual coffee in them. They're just called coffee. Yeah, there's, there's now there's both. Like we originally started with all caffeine-free products, but now we make caffeine-free. Then we make almost like a tea that has 40 to 50 milligrams of caffeine. So that would equal to a cup of uh, green tea. And then we actually now have two products with a full dose of caffeine. Just because when we originally started serving non-caffeine products, people like actually wanted the caffeine. They wanted the caffeine. Are part of the American culture and I guess Finnish as well. So um, if you want the full caffeine, we have these ground coffee that has added mushrooms into it. So you can put it in your French press and kind of brew yourself mushroom coffee that doesn't 
give you the jitters or the heartburn. So we have the whole suite now, but originally it was all caffeine-free. And then as we went on, we tried to accommodate more of the requests that our customers been asking. And one of them was to have more caffeinated options. I want to talk about your other book in a second that you wrote before uh, Sanosaurus Shrooms. Mark wrote a foreword for that. Yeah, I was going to mention that. <laughs> I was going to mention that. We'll get to that in a second. Going back to our conversation previously on entrepreneurship and building and things like that, for anybody who's listening that's been inspired by what you've done or has been inspired by past guests and are just thinking like, you know, I want to build something one day. I want to maybe make a difference in the health world mm-hmm. and see if I can align that with my career. Any books or podcasts or things that you recommend to people when they're starting off thinking about entrepreneurship or leadership or building companies? Yeah, I mean, right now there's tons and tons of amazing resources that at least I was not exposed to early on. And I think podcasts are great because they can be a secondary activity. So um, so definitely we all relate to slightly different personalities and people. So definitely whoever you resonate with as a, as a human. Like you resonate with? <laughs> Good judo move. <laughs> I actually draw most influence from non-entrepreneur. I love philosophy. I read a lot of stories. I love almost like non-business books. Yeah. So I enjoy like Herman Hesse mm-hmm. is an awesome author. I love Siddhartha. Oh, I love that one. Narcissus and the Gold Mouth. And I extract a lot of wisdom out of those. I also love kind of like ancient bedtime stories. Um, Nasruddin Hoja is um, mm-hmm. the story mm-hmm. in the kind of Persia, Turkey area that I really love. I more extract from philosophy and, and kind of that kind of stuff. But as far as if you're coming into the food and beverage industry or consumer and health or wellness, I actually recommend don't benchmark other health and wellness companies. We are still so behind in so many ways. Like if you want to launch a product or service, Go look at the fashion industry. I don't necessarily align with everything that happens in the fashion industry from a product and sustainability point of view, but God, they know how to launch stuff and do stuff. And they launch products four times a year in the food and beverage, maybe once a year. So and so, I highly recommend looking into new industries, maybe tech, fashion, beauty for inspiration, how to design and create companies and products because you don't want to be a me too and copy what other health and wellness companies are doing you got to create something new and i think expanding to arts or other industries might be helpful Hmm. that's great uh going back to the other first book that you wrote as you mentioned dr hyman wrote the forward for it's called healing mushrooms just give us a little preview of that book and and what you tried to accomplish by putting it out there yeah it's just like a guidebook to these functional mushrooms so it walks through the 10 most research mushrooms in the world so if you want to learn more about or have an easy resource always available on what are the top 10 you don't have to learn the top 50 or the 150 or even the top 20 if you learn these top 10 mushrooms you'll be well on your way and he also has 50 recipes because i was quite frustrated by people who said you can only use them in pizzas and pasta and various Italian dishes, but then you can actually use them in so many ways. And and the book has from desserts to beverages, from alcohol drinks to delicious desserts and soups, different options just to kind of inspire the diversity that you can use these. So it's a guidebook to the 10 most researched mushrooms and their health benefits. And then also it has 50 recipes to kind of walk through how to use them and how to shop for them going forward. 
Is there a mushroom that goes well with tequila? <laughs> there actually is. It's not on the book. I don't have a tequila recipe. I do have a lion's mane whiskey, a whiskey that is hopefully good for the brain. But um, <laughs> yeah, so so tequila, and so the Mexican culture actually has a lot of mushrooms in many forms. You can have them in tacos and others, but also a lot of both the psychedelic usage, but also the historical uses of mushrooms. There's a lot in Central America. So I think we can probably figure out a, a harmonia, like a synergistic blend with tequila after this podcast ends and start <laughs> testing for it. <laughs> Tara, thanks so much for coming on the Broken Brain Podcast and sharing your passion of mushrooms with us for all the great work that you and your team are up to to introduce this powerful food and make it a part of the normal lexicon out there every time i see people drinking it that i would never expect i always get so excited because i know it's a sign of progress and diversity like you said earlier it's not one ingredient or one mushroom or one even classification of foods that's going to change the game it's the diversity of everything and uh, you guys are helping increase that diversity and uh, appreciate you for that thanks for having me on and thanks for all the support over the years um if you don't know drew is the ultimate ultimate people's person like it's really like if you want to get to know new people find drew and drew will introduce you to a lot of new people he's a, he's just an absolutely an awesome person to know so if you ever see him in an event just go and talk to him he's like the kindest human being and i'm sure you'll start a relationship that way ah appreciate it man thank you again thanks Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.